My brother E. Fink co-founded the Giving Tree Band with me. He's a prolific songwriter, can channel song almost daily, but he's also a historian of rock and roll music and has a special reverence for all the great songwriters that came before him. He has a knack for almost thinking in song. And so when I was trying to pick a tune to perform on the guitar for first virtual Kind Mind gathering, the idea came to do These Days by Jackson Brown. But I wanted to check in with my brother to see if there were any other songs that were coming to his mind that might work. Near the beginning of the lockdown response to the pandemic, I asked him, is there any songs that come to mind that relate to how you might be feeling in all this? He said, yeah, For the Deluge by Jackson Brown. He started playing it for me. Now, I didn't know how to perform that song or sing it, so I didn't use it. But it was interesting that we were both thinking of Jackson Brown. So I want to read to you the lyrics of that song. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Some of them were dreamers, and some of them were fools, who were making plans and thinking of the future. With the energy of the innocent, they were gathering the tools. They would need to make their journey back to nature. While the sand slipped through the opening and their hands reached for the golden ring, with their hearts they turned to each other's hearts for refuge in the troubled years that came before the deluge. Some of them knew pleasure and some of them knew pain. And for some of them it was only the moment that mattered. And on the brave and crazy wings of youth they went flying around in the rain. And their feathers, once so fine, grew torn and tattered. And in the end they traded their tired wings for the resignation that living brings and exchanged love's bright and fragile glow for the glitter and the rouge and in a moment they were swept before the deluge. Let the music keep our spirits high. Let the buildings keep our children dry. Let creation reveal its secrets by and by when the light that's lost within us reaches the sky. Some of them were angry at the way the earth was abused by the men who learned how to forge her beauty into power, and they struggled to protect her from them, only to be confused by the magnitude of her fury in the final hour. And when the sand was gone and the time arrived, in the naked dawn only a few survived. And in attempts to understand a thing so simple and so huge, believed that they were meant to live after the deluge. Let the music keep our spirits high, let the buildings keep our children dry. Let creation reveal its secrets by and by. When the light that's lost within us reaches the sky. Pretty remarkable. But Jackson Brown is a great songwriter. And it's also worth noting that during this time of social distancing and quarantining at home, how so many of us are getting by through music or TV shows or movies or film or books, but... I think it will be important to remember how much we appreciated artists during this challenging moment in history, and hopefully we will remember to support them after this passes. So this episode is about the deeper meaning of courage. Oftentimes I think we understand courage as the opposite of fear, but I think courage actually requires fear for it to be courage. Let me tell you a little story that reflects this. Once there was a cowardly man who came to a martial arts master and asked him to show him the secret of bravery. He said, I've had enough of responding to fear 
by retreating with cowardice. I'm ready to do whatever it takes to be free from this affliction and become brave. And the martial arts master said, I can help you, but one condition. What is it? You must spend a month in a big city, and there you must stand on the street and tell everyone you encounter about how cowardly you've been. You need to say it loudly. You need to look them straight in the eye and tell the truth of your heart. At first, the young man was not sure if he could meet this request. The mere thought of drawing that kind of attention to himself scared him. But he knew his situation was hopeless if he didn't comply with the condition. So he made his way to the city. And on the first day, he was overwhelmed by fear, but knew he had to push through. Otherwise, the master couldn't help him. So he did it, and his body was trembling, and his voice was quivering, and he did it again, and he did it again. And as those days and weeks passed, and the month came to conclusion, he started to recognize that he actually wasn't scared anymore. And he had a eureka moment, where he said, I am courageous. My fear is gone. And he came back to the master to thank him. He said, your technique worked. I feel brave now. I'm no longer afraid to tell the truth of my heart. But the master pointed out to him that it was courage when you were afraid. Now that the fear has left you, it's no longer courage. But it can become a habit to be courageous and you can carry that forward and continue to grow in bravery. So here we see that courage and fear are not diametrically opposed. Actually, courage goes with the fear. And if there were no fear, we wouldn't necessarily call that behavior courageous. Just to be brave isn't courage unless there's something meaningful on the other side of that. There's some virtue in the courage and the overcoming or mastery of fear. Just doing something that's dangerous isn't automatically courage. Many scientists say that fear is actually an involuntary response a visceral response that leads us to jump back or retreat or avoid, fight, flight, freeze. Not all categorize it as an emotion. To be scared in general may be anxiety, that may be an emotional experience, but there is an involuntary response and that's intended to keep us safe. But there are times when that system is triggered and it holds us back from doing something important. Now, if you follow the etymology of courage, you come to this Latin word cor, which means heart, like corazón in Spanish. So originally, courage was understood as a heart word, which meant to tell the truth of one's heart. But now I think of it as more than that. It's when fear stands in the way of living wholeheartedly. This is why it becomes a virtue. So if the fear gets the best of us and we fall short of living authentically or in alignment with our values, like truthfulness, like compassion, respect, and so on, then we might say that's cowardice. Maya Angelou maintained that courage is the most important virtue because you can't practice any of the others with consistency. And if you think about it, there will be times where you need courage to be honest, you need courage to serve, to love. An acquaintance of mine, Adam Robinson, described courage as a reflex. I thought that was interesting. He said, right action plus peril is the 
formula of the courage reflex. Neuroscientists have begun to study this in the brain. Nilly and colleagues think they have found the courage command center in the brain. It is the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. So if you drew a line at the bridge of your nose heading into your brain, where it met the line that would connect your ears, that's about the spot where you would find the SGACC. They conducted an fMRI study with two groups of people, people who are very afraid of snakes and those who are not. And they put people into an experiment with a conveyor belt and a lever where they can bring the snake closer or further away from them. And they're trying to monitor their levels of fear. When the subjects choose to bring the snake closer and closer to them, they see more activity in the SGACC region. And the most activity in this Courage Command Center is when the self-reported fear is highest. So when people are most afraid and can bring the snake closer, that's when you see the most activity in the Courage Center. Other researchers have also studied courage in mice when simulating an attack or a threat from a hawk. So normally the mice would freeze as part of their amygdala response. The researchers were able to manipulate the DNA in the mice and change the pathways in the brain, the one that would go towards the amygdala. They were able to divert that through the prefrontal cortex. And when they did that, the mice did not freeze up. Instead, they started thumping their tail, which showed that they were preparing for aggression and ready to face their fear, so to speak. As we learn more about this in the brain, we may uncover more of the science needed to help people with phobias and building strategies for living courageously. Now, the fear response is an evolutionary feature that has kept us safe for thousands and thousands of years. But the world is much more complex now, and many of the things that are actually dangerous cannot be solved by freezing up, or by running away, or even by becoming aggressive. And therefore, it's worthwhile to understand courage, to practice courage, because there are all new kinds of threats to our survival, very abstract ones, not something you can immediately perceive and run from or fight against. So. What we really need is to keep our wits about us and to be able to have courage to do the things that are important, that are meaningful. Uh, my friend Ashley, whose colleague, said that her dad always said it's not the two dates on the tombstone that matter, it's the hyphen in between. And so the goal should not be to live forever in a world where death is the hunter, but the goal should be to live fully. And we need courage to do that. I'd like to share one more story with you, then we'll transition to a selection from the Q&A portion of the virtual gathering. This is a Korean folk story. Once upon a time, there was a quiet village that had one cow, and late one evening, a thief was sneaking into the village with the intention of stealing that cow. But on the other end of the village, a white tiger was also stealthily making its way to seize the same cow. Meanwhile, inside one of the homes near the farm, a small child is crying, and the family, try as they might, cannot console the child. So they start to threaten the child with different punishments, but nothing seemed to work. Then they said, 
will let the white tiger get you. Still, the child continued to cry and throw his tantrum. The tiger heard this and thought, the child's not scared of me. Finally, the ant came and said, all right, here's a persimmon. And the child instantly became quiet. Hearing this, the tiger became very afraid. He said to himself, what is this persimmon? Not even the threat of me intimidated the child, but upon hearing of the persimmon, instantly the child became quiet. So the tiger froze with fear of this powerful persimmon. It was at this very moment that the thief had made his way into the farm and seeing the white tiger standing completely still, he mistakenly thought it was the cow. And then the thief jumped on the back of the tiger and the tiger mistakenly thought that that must be the persimmon and ran off into the forest in terror. Now I think this story is special because of what it could represent. The tiger coming out of the jungle is a metaphor for some kind of natural disaster or threat like the virus, like the pandemic. And the tiger moves slowly and builds up over time, sort of like how we've seen with this gradual but then exponential spread. The thief represents corruption of the society. And the persimmon is a symbol of the benevolence of the people and carries that significance because it starts green and green represents unripeness, immaturity, jealousy, and it grows to its full orange sweetness. And so this is a moment where it's worth reflecting in our seclusion about the goodness that we want to manifest in our life, in our family, in our communities, and in the world. And how can we emerge from this disaster with a new commitment to community, to kindness, to global cooperation, because we know that there will be more challenges ahead, additional threats, and of course, the ongoing problem of climate crisis. So again, I thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. Please share with friends and family. I've been getting wonderful feedback that people are staying grounded with these episodes. That means a lot to me. It also touches my heart when I hear that people are able to have new kinds of conversations with their family members, with their loved ones, that they wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. They gift these episodes and then it opens the door to dialogue. So now we'll shift and play some of the question and answer session from this virtual gathering. Todd, I can start us off with one question if you would like now. Yes, go ahead. Okay. I am an empath and I am already feeling very overwhelmed with friends and family calling to talk to me about what is happening. I feel guilty if listen to them or take their call and wondered if you had any, any advice on how I can set some boundaries without feeling like I'm letting them down. Yeah, I, I think this is a challenging time for people who feel a lot. And so just like we are instructed to put our oxygen mask on first in a plane. People who are empathic and feel a lot for the earth and for the people who are suffering, they have to set a boundary 
that boundary also is for themselves because there is a limit to empathy. Empathy is helpful insofar as it connects you to the suffering and then needs to be traded for compassion and motivation to ease that suffering. But we all have limitations and limited resources, so we have to include ourselves in that compassion. But I think one of the challenges that some people are finding with this is it is difficult to a little more difficult to get off the phone because you can't quite say, uh, well, I got to run now because most people have nowhere to go. But they're still saying that to each other. I tell people, and this isn't just for in this crisis, but it would be better to have a five minute conversation with your friend and tell them that from the beginning and give all of yourself than to talk for 20 minutes while tapping your foot going like, okay, come on, when is he or she going to end? Because I got to go. And that's just a, a matter of communication. And when you know that you're feeling a lot from all of the energy of your friends suffering and sharing that with you, you have to take time for, for your own renewal and use some of this time for meditation. Thank you. Yeah, Todd, I have another one here, unless somebody wanted to raise their hand. I'll jump into this question. I'm watching the chat box, but... I am an extrovert and rely on human interaction and really battling loneliness and not being able to touch people. Um, connecting virtually is okay right now, but not for the long term. Should I hug a pillow more? I don't know how to solve for this. It's not easy. Meditation retreats are not easy. Being in silence is not easy. If you've never spent a week in silence, you wouldn't know how much uh, not talking is like fasting from food. So I, I would say, one, this is a rare opportunity to be with yourself, to wholly love yourself, maybe for the first time. When we are lonely and dissatisfied with our own company, there is something limiting when we feel like, I need somebody else to share my company. I can't share my own company. I don't want to be with myself, but I hope you want to be with me. And I think there's something incomplete there. And so then if that becomes our way of dealing with that, it'll be a habit. And, and most people build their lives avoiding themselves. We know death is coming. We know some adversity is coming, but we strive so hard to build a routine that can delay the contemplation of those things but on the other hand I will say that although we don't necessarily not everybody has the same situation home if you're at home with your lover I mean that might be fantastic if you're single it might be a little bit more painful if you're divorced if your loved one or spouse is deceased this may be hitting you very differently but I'd like to say this also about social distancing it's actually physical distancing I've actually witnessed that people have grown closer, at least in, in my life. And also the times when I have to, have to make runs to the grocery store, I noticed that there's less small talk. It doesn't mean long talk. It just means that my brief interactions with some of the store workers are real. They're no longer transactional. I look at somebody stocking shelves. I said, you know, thanks for being here and doing what you're doing at a safe distance. And it wasn't just, oh, thank you. Let me know if I can help you find something. It, it, it was real. 
we don't realize how much social distancing we've been practicing up till now. You get on a plane, you get on a bus, and you're social distancing. You're not physical distancing, but we're social distancing. Immediately, everyone buries themselves into their phones, and you might be sitting next to a stranger for a whole flight and not get their name. So I'm hoping that in this reckoning of empathy, this is actually the beginning of the end of social distancing. If you have the luxury of stepping out and going for a walk, you may have noticed that when you pass people, they acknowledge you. They may not talk to you, but they see you and people are smiling with their eyes when they encounter each other. And there's some something truly beautiful about that. Thank you. A question I got here is, I am a single person and I need support, something vocal. How do I not burden my friends and find balance? Well, I think we have to find new ways to build community during this time. And that's why we're doing the Kind Mind gatherings. I would say join these and we need to make connections here where people then can continue to have conversations. I mean, the, the original purpose of the physical Kind Mind gatherings at at the Hyatt and in Boulder, Colorado was so that people could meet each other, could get to know each other, could be there for each other. And it always happens, it seems to happen that people became close. So hopefully that will continue to happen in virtual space. But if the challenge is boredom with respect to being alone, I would encourage people to take up a project. There's only so much, I think, Netflix binging people can do before it just doesn't keep their mind occupied anymore. But take up a project that will take you at least two weeks, from two weeks to the end of your life to complete. And if that project can be something that takes into account the well-being of the people around you or your community, suddenly you'll find yourself in a flow state and this whole thing will pass quicker than you could have ever imagined because that's what happens when a creative person is in the flow state. Also, creativity is one of the simplest ways to cultivate resilience. To be resilient in life, you have to make decisions. You have to make decisions in crisis. But the brain is highly metaphorical. So any decision that we make, whether uh, for art or for life, does not get stored in separate places in our memory. They all get stored as decisions. And so if we even make some simple piece of art, some painting, some drawing, some repair work with our home, The end result is the brain believes that it has made countless decisions. And you can emerge from an art project, not only with the extra dopamine from completing a project, but also with confidence, feeling that I know how to make decisions now. And you can start to see what your next steps may be in this transition to the other side. Hi, Todd, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. As good as can be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I Where are you? I'm at home. Where's home? In Indiana. In Indiana? Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you're at home and not in the hospital. Absolutely. I'm glad uh, things are a little better. Go ahead. I don't really have a question. I just wanted what you said really struck a chord. Because yeah. you you know me enough that you know a lot of my journey in I tease people I've had 10 years of training for this isolation and lockdown that we're in and um, because I've had to practice social distancing I've had to put on the mask multiple times you know over the years I've had to make that distance and I've seen a lot of my family members and friends struggle with this in this short little window that they have 
And I try just to encourage everybody that, like you said, find something to do, explore your creative side, but also dig deeper. You know, if anything, this is the time for self-reflection and really learning more about who you are as a person. Take this opportunity. It's so rare to be able to take a pause and take that breath and just realize who you are as a person because we're always so busy and we're always running around and we're always doing things. Embrace this. And I keep telling them, you know, enjoy the time that you have. If you're alone, it sucks, I know, but then we have conferences like this or you get on FaceTime or you get on Facebook Live and you try to find ways to connect. But know that there's a silver lining in all of this that it's going to end. We're going to go back to our lives. And hopefully we've gotten more compassion out of this and more decency to come forward. Kathy, have you noticed that there's a bit of a shift in the struggle that you've experienced knowing that you're not alone in the way that it was before? Does that have any effect on your personal journey? Oh, absolutely. Um, I know when I first got sick and, and couldn't work anymore and I was homebound, it was very depressing and it was very hard. I can reflect back on that time. And now that I'm seeing everybody else kind of go through the same thing, it's kind of like an aha moment for me because mm-hmm. like, I know exactly what you're feeling. I know exactly how you feel because I've been there. So I know it's, it's kind of weird that I almost in this time, because everybody's so close now and everybody's home and we're all around each other, it's almost like my life has come back to me in this time frame. So for me personally, it's kind of a cool thing to have everybody stuck at home with me. You know, I don't know if that sounds weird, but. I understand what you're saying. Well, thank you for sharing. That's why I keep saying it's a reckoning of empathy. Thank you, Kathy. Go ahead, Becky. Uh, well, first of all, thank you and hello to everybody. This is really cool. Um, I'm out in Arizona, so this is even more special that I can view you guys from here. But I've been feeling a lot lately, kind of just, I'm, I'm totally fine with where I am personally, but I'm just like super duper frustrated with basically the stupidity of people in general. And so I just want to like, figure out a way to stop being so negative about everybody who's doing everything wrong. Thanks for sharing that. I think it takes a lot of training in equanimity. So it's a totally natural thing to see how different people react to this. But I think it's important to keep in mind, one, we're still possibly in the very beginning of this. Human beings do not understand intuitively exponential growth. So what that means is we're good with linear growth because that's how our ancestors evolved. I'm going to get one piece of fruit today, another one tomorrow, another one the next day. And and so that's why in the basic experiment of asking somebody, would you rather have $1,000 every day for 30 days given to you or one penny today, two cents tomorrow, four cents the next day, eight cents the next day, almost everybody without any context would immediately grab the thousand dollars a day because that's how our brains work. And so they would get $30,000, which is great. But the other way is exponential growth. And that would end up yielding over 30 days, $10 million. 
And if you can't in- intuitively grasp that that would be 10 million, that means that we don't quite understand how the disease or the virus is likely to progress throughout the world, the pandemic. Another way to think of this is another thought experiment of a pond that's completely clear. But one day a lily pad emerges. On the second day, there's two lily pads. On the third day, there's four. And let's say it takes 30 days to cover the entire pond. On which day of those 30 was the pond halfway covered? Well, many people might intuitively think it was day 15, but it would actually be day 29, the day before it was entirely covered because it's growing exponentially. My point here is I feel like probably many of us have done this. If you're looking for radical empathy, you find the times when people are offending you and you put yourself in the shoes of the offender when it's safe to do so. I I mean, I can honestly say that I found ways to rationalize it in my mind in December when it went from seven cases to 17 cases. And then when it finally landed in the United States, I still said, well, it's only in Washington, I think, or it's only in that cruise ship. This is what empathy is. It's like saying, it's not me. Oh yeah, there's all these fires in California, but you know, that's the price you pay when you live on the West Coast and you get ocean and you get beach and you get good weather. We live in Illinois or we live in the Midwest and we're dealing with snow yesterday. You know, So I guess what I'm saying is there's always another gear of empathy. And, and I've seen the images of young people still partying for their spring break. And we might say, don't you care about your, your grandparents? Don't you care about other people's health? Looking at kids on spring break, you could really, you might really wonder, do you care about your own health? What, what are they doing spending their time intoxicating themselves? And we're saying you should care about someone else's health. But when you're in that stage of life and you're engaged in that way, you're not concerned about your own health. Otherwise, you wouldn't be drinking 20 beers that night and just hoping that, you know, you don't die or pass out or get left somewhere. There's a lot of empathy to be had for uh, for that segment of the population that do not have developed brains yet until 26 years old. When I reflect back on my teenage years, I was very reckless and uh, I, I cared about people deeply, but I I definitely was had a long way to go in empathy training. Other people, this is all hitting them differently. But I want to draw your attention to really quick before I go on to another question. And if it gets a little late, I understand if people have to go, but I want to give whatever time I can, because I know this is nurturing for many people to be able to see each other's faces. But we're not all asked to make the same sacrifice here. If you are well enough off where you can hit the pause button, that's great. I think it's important for all of us to think of how our experience would be different if hitting pause for us meant I have to close my business and fire 10 employees or I have to stay home and um, risk getting fired myself. So there's no easy answers here. I mean, I put out the curiosity between the balance of public health and economic health and not everybody agrees that not everybody agrees that they're separate even. So there are there is a segment of the population that wants to get back to life. And I don't think that they necessarily need to be shamed because I just think that everybody is feeling this differently and everyone's asked to make different sacrifices. When people compare it to a war, it was less abstract. Not that this is more or less severe than World War II, 
It's just that like the exponentiality of the virus, the virus itself is invisible and therefore abstract. And our brains are not designed, our fear response is not designed to deal with pathogens. It's designed to deal with predators. So people naturally will, it will handle it differently. Thank you for sharing. Hi, Tony, you mind sharing next? Oh, I'll, try to, I'll try to be a little quicker with my responses so more people can have an opportunity to. Go ahead. Oh, I'm, and I'll be kind of quick too. And thanks for explaining about the 26 and younger so that can give me some empathy. The prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until 26 years old. And that is the center used for seeing bigger picture and making decisions based on long-term consequences. Perfect, thanks. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> so I guess mine was sort of like a thought that when you mentioned about the physical disconnectedness that we had prior to this, like maybe we were just working, going back and forth, holding our, our cell phones, social media, things like that. And this is sort of like a forced period, like when you mentioned lunar period, like say, um, like yearly, there's a monthly Ramadan where people stop and they meditate and they, they pray and they fast. Mm -hmm. Is this probably like a period instead of looking at, you know, the pain of it, but hopefully we come out of it um, missing the, the physical and the connectedness of it? Because I'm telling you right now, if you're from a family that's huggers, you know, um, and, and like to yeah. be social physically, you, you miss that. So it almost feels like it's an imprisonment, but I hope the joy is that um, coming out of this, hopefully safely and understanding we're all doing this for everyone, that we can then appreciate um, actual real connectedness. Thank you. Yeah, so there'll be many things that we will realize we took for granted, physical connection, but then we will also realize we were always physically nearby each other. We just weren't uh, emotionally bonding. And then there's many people who are always in a prison, prisoners, animals, people with mental illness and are lonely. And so hopefully in the reckoning of empathy, we won't forget them after things cross over the transition. Thank you. I think we have to come out of this more loving. And all of us have a part to play in the grand scheme of things. But we have to all do our best to find a way to be loving, even when we're faced with people maybe misunderstanding, uh, maybe seeming selfish, because the whole collective has been selfish. And it, unfortunately, it still brings out the worst of, of good intentioned people. So I challenge you when you find have, when you find yourself having these conversations and that visceral reaction to keep transmuting your anger. I mean, today I felt just the weight of so much in my sinuses and in my heart of all the people that I continue to hear from that are losing everything and are so scared, so terrified. It takes all the meditative power that I have to transmute anger and sadness and brokenheartedness into compassion. So if you can be kind to even one person who's being mean to you, you may transform them. I don't think we can change people by being, by being mean to them, by being 
certain about what we think is going to happen after this. I think what we really need is to enter into this vulnerability together. And we need curiosity. 